Well, um, this is a great story. I'm excited to get into it with you. Uh, and we're in a series right now called Portrait, where each week we've been looking at um, various distortions of Christianity or uh, of the church, of, of our experience, and considering how Scripture offers us a clear or represents to us a clear picture, both of who God is and who we are. And these distortions have been based in many cases in real experiences, to say they're merely misperceptions is to put it wrong. They're real experiences that outsiders uh, to Christianity or the Christian story have had with us as Christians, with their Christian friends, or with the church. And there's a number of ways to think about that. <clears throat> and one helpful way that I thought of this week is through the lens of a brand. And so Scott Bedbury, he's the creator of the Starbucks and Nike brands. Um, he defines a brand like this. He says, a brand is a collection of perceptions in the consumer's mind. Some of you in marketing kind of know this. So, for instance, when you hear the word Starbucks, what comes to mind? Coffee, Coffee, yeah, what else? The green logo. The mermaid, mermaid, yeah, which is like part of the green logo, I think. Come on, no, I'm kidding. What else? Christmas cups. Christmas cups? You're already ready. Pumpkin spice lattes, oak, walls, maybe... The atmosphere, maybe an over-friendly barista. Um, you've all had, I think, you know, a warm place for conversation. You've all had experiences um, with Starbucks, or most of us have. Some of those are positive. Some of them are, are negative. Um, the point is that when we're presented with a brand name, we immediately summon up all of our past experiences of that brand. You, you immediately, well, maybe you weren't in Starbucks, but you've you sum up those experiences, the interactions with the product, with the people there, and you have, you have an instant opinion, whether you love it or hate it or you're kind of maybe neutral. And the key here is that outsiders to Christianity, the, to, to outsiders, the word Christian has more in common with a brand than it does with a faith. Am I right? A shift in meaning that in recent decades has only been magnified by this increasing use of the term Christian to uh, put on clothes and schools and political action groups and whatever else. And sadly, here's the deal. It's a bad brand in the eyes of many people. It's not, a band, it's not a brand that a lot of people are even buying. They don't want to buy it. So if you ask people on the street, go out there and say, hey, what's one word that you'd use to describe Christianity? What do you think you'd hear? Hypocrites. John Burke in his book on Unshockable Love has done this. He said, I've asked this question all over North America, Europe, Scandinavia, Australia, And I found these answers consistently troubling, judgmental, narrow-minded, bigoted, and hypocritical. These these are the most common answers to that question that he's found in his research. Subsequently, when Christianity means for most people outside the church has shifted from being a winsome, engaging faith that changed the world in the first centuries of the church, this pessimistic and manipulative, narrow-minded brand... Uh, and it's, so it's easy to see why, the next, especially the next generation, people my daughter's age, some of our kids' age, want nothing to do with it. They're not buying it. They're not going to pay for that. <laughs> uh, not that you paid for anything this morning, but you know what I'm saying. So what do we do? Gabe Lyons, he's the founder of this uh, movement called Q Ideas, which is like Christian TED Talks. Uh, and he's the author of this book called Unchristian. He put it th- this way. When you're faced with that challenge between brand and faith, bad brand, good faith, He says, it comes down to this. We must commit to doing the hard work of reclaiming Christianity's essence in our own lives. Start with your life. 
which might just start with this honest admission that much of what we call Christianity today is actually, has no connection to the faith at all. No connection. In fact, he says that uh, we need to have this willingness to consider how much of our faith has become entangled with actually with Western culture. And it's, that's actually at odds with the heart of Jesus. And then he says, overall, that's going to require the comprehensive openness, the idea that we may be living an incomplete or inaccurate version of Christianity. Incomplete, inaccurate. And so this morning, in light of that criticism and that work, that Christianity is judgmental, hypocritical, and bigoted, I want to look at John 9 with you. And this encounter this man, born blind, has with the Pharisees. I'm going to invite us into the role of the Pharisees, actually. We're going to look at the man born blind, but I think many times we're attracted to the people in the stories who we wish we were and not the people who we actually are. So I'm going to have us in a maybe uncomfortable posture and see ourselves a little bit like the Pharisees this morning. And, and in that story, I want to look at at least three implications for our lives as we seek to reclaim Christianity, the essence of the Christian faith. And so here's kind of the thesis for the morning, which breaks down into an outline, which is in your bulletin. For us to become the kinds of people that God intended us to be, for us to be a church in which Christ is presented clearly to people, I'm convinced that we all must fight pharisaical creep by beginning to see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus and then letting God restore us so then we can be, uh, cooperate, I should say, with him in restoring others. So fight pharisaical creep, that's verses 16 to 34. See ourselves with the eyes of Jesus, verses 35 to 41. And then let God, by letting God restore us, that's verse 15. Uh, and you'll see if you look in your bulletin that I flipped point one to point three. Sorry, I did that last week too, but that's what I'm doing. So wait for point one. It's going to be point three, okay? So first, fight Pharisaical creep. This is verses 16 to 34. This is the bulk of the story we read in which the Pharisees and the man born blind have this back and forth debate. It's very funny about his healing, a debate that culminates with them kicking him out of their church, saying, we don't want anything to do with you, this guy, because you have no seminary education, no doctrinal understanding, and you're challenging us in all of our learning, our carefully constructed house of cards. You've just wrecked that, so you're out. Uh, And the reason they do it is because, wait for it, he had a real-life experience with God. He didn't hear a lecture or a sermon. He didn't read any books. He wasn't, he didn't, you know, I had Karen Austin up here. He didn't answer any questions about what he believed, didn't believe. Um, All he had was an experience with Jesus, with God. An experience that utterly was outside their God, God box. Like, that's not the way you come to faith. And they were unwilling in that to validate his experience. So they just kicked him out. They kick him out because that's just not how it works. That's not how you begin following God. So what does that mean for us if we apply that to our lives? Well, a couple of things. Number one, again, we're in the, remember, we're in the role of the Pharisees here. I want us to understand that the Pharisees were not all bad. I think they get a bad rap in the Bible. Obviously, they have a lot of um, hard conversations with Jesus, but they're actually the reformers of Judaism in that time. And that's why Jesus' confrontations with them in the Gospels shock so many people. Because they, they, re, they, they are concerned with the moral decay that's happening all around them because of Roman influence. They're concerned for God's law given through Moses, that it's being compromised and weakened. The moral fabric of society is actually eroding. So they're concerned for that. I think we should be concerned too. They loved Scripture. They loved studying the Bible. They diligently, John 5.39, which is the backdrop for this story, 
Jesus recognizes that. You go to Bible study every week. You know, you're in church every Sunday. That's good. Uh, they, they pride themselves on that, actually. You hear that in verse 28, how they pride themselves on being true to Moses, right? Being his followers. A detail that reveals, I think, that at a level, they're just trying to be faithful to what they believed. They are just trying to be the best, if you can put it in our nomenclature, the best Christians they can be. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They're just trying to be like Jesus, I think. I mean, not Jesus, <laughs> like Moses, but let's not go there. So here's the deal. Number two, in that, they'd miss the heart of everything. That's why Jesus says to them in John 5, you study the scriptures because you think that in them are the words of life. But here's the deal. Those scriptures testify to me and you refuse to come to me. You refuse me. I'm the life you're seeking. I'm the life behind that story. I'm the source of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. I come to offer that and you reject me. And here's the deal with this guy, my work and the lives of other people. So you're missing the point. You're missing the life I'm offering you. So here's the application. It's possible for us to study the Bible. We're doing that right now, and yet miss Jesus entirely. It's possible for us to hear a sermon like you're hearing this morning and completely miss Jesus. I hope that makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, That's the key to Phariseeism. We can develop such tight doctrinal frameworks through which we understand and evaluate God and the world around us that what was intended to be this theological home for us has become a theological prison. Do you hear that? We can, a, a theological home, that's what scripture is supposed to be, a place in which we can thrive, others can find home and thrive as well, becomes a theological prison in which we get trapped in this never-ending game of thumbs up, thumbs down. Sort of like those two old guys sitting in the balcony in the Muppets. I don't even know their names, but you know who I'm talking about, right? Who instead of participating in the so-called show, you know, I, I won't sing the song because I'm tone deaf, but they're relegated to being merely spectators Critics and judges of the very thing that they were created, if you can think of a Muppet as a creation, to be a part of. They're Muppets. Join the show. Their life is the life of the Pharisees, a life of cold, distant, cynical judgment. You hear this? And by the way, in case we think that's their problem, not our problem, remember, I'm inviting us into their posture. Think again. So for a whole week, this last week, real story, I tried this. To be more conscious... You can see where this is going about my tendency to judge other people. And you're probably wondering, how'd that go for you? Well, here's what I discovered. It didn't go very well. There's not a single day this week I went without sitting in the balcony of my own <laughs> judgment, doing the very same thing. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for his messy, messy room, maybe even in my mind, judge my daughter for leaving her dishes in the sink, and my wife for the way she parents my kids. I judge my neighbors. This is true for leaving the lights on in their house at all hours and just burning precious greenhouse gases as if they're alone responsible for the global climate crisis. I get in my car every day now, drive my kids to school and find a host of inept drivers who should have never been allowed to drive because they obviously have failed their driving tests. I go to the grocery store. I complain to myself about the brainless lack of organization there that makes it impossible to look, find what I'm looking for. Is this anybody else? Like, or I stand in the shortest line I can and I judge everybody there because, look, people, it says 10 items or less and it's clear that three of you have more than 10 in your basket. What is wrong with you people? Can't you count to 10? Even worse, I watch the news and I judge and I troll Twitter, Facebook. I'm just filled with judgment for people I feel like are ignorant, stupid, arrogant, brash, Childish, I see this person with a MAGA hat on, and I judge. 
not knowing that that person, these are true stories, works at a refugee resettlement camp in Corpus, camp in Corpus Christi. I, I see a man defending traditional marriage, and I judge him not knowing he has a transgender daughter he'd die for. I see a gay couple on Facebook. I judge not knowing they pray, they give, they serve, and they love God deeply. You see, judging is our favorite pastime. <laughs> we love it. It makes us feel good. And the result is when we do this, like the guys in the balcony, like the Pharisees of old, we become characterized more by what we're against than what we're for, more by what we don't believe than what we do believe, which I think is what misses the point completely. We miss the point. See, being against stuff is not the goal of Christianity. Judging others is obviously not the goal of Christianity. Defending the sacred ground, the quote-unquote sacred ground of truth, is not the goal of Christianity. The goal, I should say the gift and this is ironic that comes out of Romans because we think that's like we've got to get the people to memorize Romans, the Romans road, to convince them of the truth, the gift. Romans 6.23, God's gift is life, real life, eternal life, delivered by who? Jesus, not by us. God is pleased that we recognize Jesus in our midst. That's great. We prayed for that this morning. But he's pleased even more to give us the life of Jesus. It's free. And that's the point of Christianity, to receive the life of Jesus. Have open enough hands, open enough hearts to receive Jesus. And so the question becomes this. How can we be freed, as we move to the second point here, from the prison of our convictions, the balcony of our judgments, however you want to think of it, for this life of Jesus? How can I participate in the life of Christ that he's called me to and he wants to call all people to? How can I be a part of that? And so it's twofold. By first seeing through the eyes of Jesus, and then letting God restore us to Jesus. Okay? So first, seeing through the eyes of Jesus. We must begin to see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus. This is the end of the passage that we read, uh, where Jesus hears the Pharisees have kicked this guy out of church. We actually didn't read this. So let me give you a little summary. He finds this man uh, who the Pharisees were debating with. He finds the Pharisees there too, and he makes this fascinating statement in verse 39. Uh, I've come into the world to judge the world. <laughs> Talk about judgment. And here's the judgment. I've come so that people who who are blind will see and people who can see will become blind. That's my judgment. Isn't that interesting? So what is he saying? This is like a little riddle. Well, first of all, Jesus makes this same reversal all over the Gospels. And when he does, it's a typical way for Jesus to say this one thing. The Gospel reverses everything. The Gospel reverses everything. So in Luke 16... There's a story of this man named Lazarus who's rich, not Lazarus who died. This is a different Lazarus. And then uh, this poor man. I'm sorry, Lazarus is not rich. Lazarus has died. He's a poor man. And there's this rich man. And this rich man and his wealth in the afterlife uh, is not in heaven, as we think, as he thinks. He's, I've given everything to God. I've been in church. I've been very committed. In fact, Lazarus, the poor man, is in heaven at the end of the story, And the rich man is where? He's in hell. It's a very graphic story. Luke 18, two chapters later, you've got this tax collector and this Pharisee who've come to the temple, who come to church to pray. You know this story probably. Tax collector won't even look up at God. Can't even utter the words of prayer. You know, God, forgive me, I'm a a sinner. He has this weight of shame that he's carrying because of his life, his work, who he's been with, what he's failed to do, and this Pharisee. He's so proud of himself and his goodness that he's looking not only up at God. I mean, I don't know how many of you look up at God when you pray. 
probably not many of us. He's so proud of himself that he looks down on this tax collector with disdain. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. So do you remember what Jesus, how he finishes this story? He finishes it this way with the question, whose prayer did God hear? Who do you think God's hearing? Who is justified? Who is the one who gets to go to heaven in God's sight? The tax collector. So here's what's going on. Jesus says, my gospel brings into judgment the pecking order of the world. It reverses everything. He's saying the gospel is this. You're saved not by what you've done, but what Christ has done. You're saved not by your work, but by the work of God. And that means who's saved? Not good people, not often. Uh, not people, but people can admit they're not good enough. Who, who can begin there? Who's lost? Not the quote-unquote bad people, the people with rags and filth, but the, one, the ones who are so proud of their righteousness and their goodness, who, who can't admit that their goodness is actually a barrier to salvation. Who, who, who won't admit they need saving from anyone because they can do it themselves. Do you see this? The, the people the world advantages are disadvantaged when it comes to the gospel. The people the world disadvantages are actually at an advantage. Which is why Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 41, the very last thing he says in this narrative, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim you can see, you remain guilty. You're just like the rich man. You're just like the one, the Pharisee who's praying, because you, say, because you say you see you're blind. That's what he's saying to them. It's a remarkable and very strange thing, and here's what it means. It's actually like, like this man elsewhere in the Gospels who comes to Jesus, asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says to the man, I can do that if you just believe. Do you hear this? This is really important, the order of things. I can do that if you just believe. I'll heal your son. And then the man says this remarkable things to Jesus. He doesn't say, prove it, Jesus, or what do you mean by believe? I already believe. I, I'm a, I go to church. I'm a, I, I believe in Moses, like the Pharisees said. We already believe in Moses. Why don't, we don't need to believe anymore. I'm a good person. I've been good my whole life. I got baptized when I was a baby. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He doesn't get in that sort of debate with Jesus like the Pharisees did. He says this, this amazing thing. I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. I want to believe, Jesus, but I can't believe that you're going to heal my son because he's really sick. Help me in my unbelief. So when you go to Jesus and say, I want to believe, I don't believe, but I want to believe, that's the beginning of belief. Help me in my unbelief. I want to know. I don't know. I want to know, Jesus. I obviously have missed something here. Help me to know. I want to see, but I can't see. I can't, I, I can't see clearly, Jesus. Help me see. That's the beginning of sight. In fact, in the real world, <laughs> sorry I'm a little weepy, but I can't see very well. Um, when you're having troubles with your eyesight, where do you go to receive sight? You go to the optometrist. <laughs> Who in their right mind would go to the optometrist and say, well, I don't really need the prescription you're giving me. I want a better one. I want a different one. Like, you wouldn't do that. You go to the doctor. He gives you a prescription, or she does. You wear the glasses the rest of your life or you get Lasix or whatever, you admit you can't see clearly. Your vision is not 2020. You need help. And that's not a problem because there's a solution. <laughs> and you're willing to accept that solution, that help in your life. Why don't we do that with faith? Why do we pretend we can see and know and we already believe so much? And Jesus is saying here, you know, there's no greater blindness, Pharisees, than to refuse help, than to refuse a cure. Than to refuse to know. 
to be blind to your own blindness. There's no greater blindness than that. Blindness is not the issue here. It's willful blindness. It's, it's this, when you see something, but you won't look at it. It's when you, in something, there's a, there's a discover, but you will not take the time to discover it, to look behind the veil. It's refusing to look. It's refusing to see. It's refusing to see what can be seen. Like this man was clearly healed, and nobody could see that. They would not accept it. They were too afraid to turn around and peer beyond what they already thought they knew into the unknown. And Christian friends, we are not immune to that. I mean, we are historically, our resistance to the ideas that don't fit in our box, our God box, our resistance to people who are not like us, our resistance to ideas that don't fit within our constructs. (laughs) I mean, doesn't our unwillingness in many areas make us look a little bit like the religious leaders of Jesus' day? to many people. We should be the most curious. I'm just going to say this. We should be the most accommodating, most accepting, most affirming, most loving people, the most compassionate, open-eyed people in any room we enter. That's the gospel. And any step a person takes toward God, it doesn't matter who they are, what they fail to do, that doesn't fit it, even if they don't fit inside your God box, should excite you to no end because they're stepping toward God. Remember, Jesus has come to give us life. We don't possess it. It's his life. If they don't get the words right, they don't get the theology right, they don't get the prayer right, so what? (laughs) If we don't move beyond or outside that God box, like this man in this story, here's the great tragedy. We are blind. We're stuck in our blindness. We're blind to our blindness. Which brings us to the third thing, what I want to conclude with. We need to let God restore us to Jesus. And this is the last thing I want to look at. The first thing in the story where the guys say to him, how did you receive your sight? Tell us. How did it happen? And he says this amazing thing, very simple, where I want to kind of meditate for a moment. He, meaning Jesus, put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. He put mud and spit on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. And it's important to note that this is one of nine occurrences in this story of the word eyes. Verse 6, verse 10, verse 11, verse 14, verse 15, verse 17, verse 21, verse 26, and verse 30, all have the word eyes in them. Eyes are important in this story. Blindness and sight, the movement from blindness to sight is important. And the key in there is that in all nine cases, every one of them, the word eyes has a personal pronoun accompanying it. You're like, so what? Thanks for the Greek lesson. But here's what's important about that. The pronoun in every case is heightened in Greek by being placed outside its natural order. In, that, in most Greek, it's after the noun where you have the pronoun. That's not the case in English, but in Greek here, the pronoun is before the noun. His eyes, her eyes, their eyes, our eyes. And so here's the lesson from that for us. John has put this pronoun before the eyes every time as if to say, reader, what about your eyes? What about yours? Pharisees, what about your eyes? I know you love the guy. I know you love Jesus too, but it's really a story about your eyes and your ability to see. Have you been touched? Have your eyes been touched? That's the question on the table for us this morning. Like, think of it for a moment. Letting someone who you don't know, you've never seen, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. You've only heard rumors about. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. Ah, he's a fellow. He's a guy. I heard about him. I heard he he cured some people. Letting this guy, who you can't see, you don't know, touch you. And not just touch you, like I can put my hand on your shoulder and that's appropriate touch, I hope, but spit and rub it on your face. I'm just saying... That's an exceedingly vulnerable move for any person. 
something I'm afraid I wouldn't allow, even if it is Jesus. I just, I'm not ready to go there. I'm not that desperate. It's just way too much for me. Right? Any of you? Yeah. It's too much to confess to others the deep darkness and sin in my life and ask for help. If you only knew, you'd never come back. It's too much to reveal the blindness in my life, whether it's in my marriage or my faith or my sense of call. It's too much to admit to someone that I don't know what I don't know. I thought I knew, but I don't know. And here we are, <laughs> Sunday morning. It's, that I might have been wrong on that issue or this conviction I used to have. It's too much to disclose the deep doubts, you know, the unbelief, whether it's that faith or my children's future. It's just too much. It's too much to share my fears with you. And yet, that's exactly how it happened in the story. Because that's exactly, it's that kind of space, confession and vulnerability and weakness, that's the space in which Christ works with us. 1 Corinthians 1. Think of how I found you. Not when you were strong, but when you were weak. I'm proud of working with weak people, Jesus says, because I get to restore them to the masterpieces I intended them to be and give you the life that is my life to share. So that's why the story begins this way. Emphasized again and again throughout, right up into the end, the man's eyes, his eyes, my eyes, your eyes need to be touched. Have your eyes been touched? That's the question to you this morning. It's God's ways of asking you this morning, will you let me touch your eyes? Um, And so I want to invite our worship team back up. Um, See, like this man born blind and the Pharisees, I believe, God loves them. God wants to make something beautiful out of us and our lives and our journeys. And it starts with a touch. And so I'm going to invite us to pray for spiritual sight right now. It's not a once and done prayer. It's something I think you do throughout your life. But I'm going to invite us into kind of a vulnerable posture here. Uh, We're going to sing a chorus from that song in a moment, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Saved a Wretch Like Me. I what? Once was lost, but now I'm found. Was what? Blind, but now I see. Before we do that, I want to pray with us uh, for spiritual sight. I'm going to have you do something. First, you'll close your eyes. And some of you know where I'm going with this. I'm going to have you just take your hands, if maybe just one, and, and place, place them on your eyes. Touch your eyes in, in a posture of faith. And then I just remember, I'm with you in this, and I'm just leading us in prayer. I want this too. So let's pray together. God, it's, uh, it's our prayer this morning for spiritual sight. And yet it's our confession, God. It's, it's natural for us to see things our own way. It's natural for us to see the surface of things. We confess, God, it's, that our natural ability to see is limited because of that. And we confess also that you see all things, even though we're blind. And we thank you for that. So we ask you, God, give us eyes to see as you see. We want to see Give us your eyes as we approach this season of your coming. Give us your eyes as we learn to love in the way of your love. Give us your eyes in our homes, in our church, in the places of our work, in this world in which we live. 
Give us your eyes for all that we encounter this day and the days to come. Father, we yield our spiritual sight to you that our spiritual sight would become spiritual vision and would become more and more and more clear. We call to you, Lord. Show us the great and mighty things which we do not know and cannot see. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll remind us, if you have younger kids,